Well, hello, Mountain. It's so good to be with you today. Uh, my name is Ethan Magnus. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're a guest with us today, we're so glad that you're with us. I want to say a special hello to uh, those who are with us at the Bel Air and Edgewood campus. We are today one church meeting in three locations, and so if you're with us today over there, we're glad you're here uh, with us. Uh, we're in the story right now. In fact, we're almost two-thirds of the way through the story. We're talking about chapter 20. Uh, chapter 20 right here in your storybooks, or uh, what chapter 20 is taken from uh, the book of Esther in the Bible. In fact, the, the whole chapter is all taken from this one book of Esther, uh, which I'm pretty excited about. I love the book of Esther. Uh, one of the reasons I love it is it is just such a great story. It just tells this one simple story of this one situation and how uh, God works in the lives of a few people. So it's just a great story. The other reason I love the book of Esther is it has such a clear message. I think sometimes when we read uh, a book of the Bible, we may kind of wonder, okay, what am I supposed to take away from this? What am I supposed to learn? It's like, you know that thing like when you're playing uh, touch football and like, you know, somebody says, I got you. And you says, no, you didn't. And they say, yes, I did. It was just one hand. No, it wasn't. It was two. And like, you can't really tell if you got him or not. And then all of a sudden you're playing and some guy forgets what he's doing and he tackles you. And you're like, oh, okay, yeah, you got me, right? Esther's kind of like that. It's kind of like getting tackled in the middle of a touch football game because it has this one laser-focused challenge for us. And so I, would just, I just invite you to, to prepare to be challenged, uh, to just let yourself, if you're up for it, be really challenged by the Word of God because I don't know any other way to read and interact with the book of Esther. Now let's give ourselves a little bit of context here so we don't lose track of where we are. Uh, God had brought his people to the status of being a nation under people like Saul and David and a couple of people like that. This nation was not very faithful to God, and so ultimately God punished them by dragging them off into exile in Babylon. After 70 years of this, Babylon has now been conquered by the Persians, and a guy named Cyrus, the king of Persia, said that the Jews who wanted to could go back home to Jerusalem. And a lot of them did, but a lot of them didn't. In fact, Jewish communities uh, were established throughout the kingdom of Persia. It was a relatively prosperous time for the Jewish people. And our story arrives in that setting. Uh, we're focused on a Jewish family uh, that lived in Susa, the capital of Persia, Esther and her uncle Mordecai. The king of Persia at the time is a guy named Xerxes. If you're all into ancient history, you may know Xerxes is the one who led the Persian armies across Turkey and attacked Greece, uh, where he was stopped by the brave efforts of 300 Spartans who stood in the gap at Thermopylae, gave the Greeks time to rally their armies and drive the Persians out. Uh, so that's Xerxes we're talking about. That's the king of Persia that are, kind of is in our story here. And our story really starts when Xerxes has a problem with his wife. Xerxes' wife is Vashti, and he's having a big party, and he wants to show her off, and so he says, come to the party, and she doesn't come. And so he has a meeting with his counselors to discuss, what do you do when you call your wife and she doesn't come? And these guys, these guys are, they're thinking big picture. They're concerned not just over Xerxes' marriage and Vashti. They're concerned for all the marriages in all the realm of Persia. What if word gets out that Xerxes called his wife and she didn't come? Then none of our wives will come when we call them. They're so concerned. And so they suggest that he should kick Vashti out, make her no longer queen, drive her from the court, and find a new wife. And Xerxes says, all right, let's do that. 
Now let's be clear, this is sort of a princess story, this book of Esther, but it's not a Disney princess story, okay? This guy Xerxes is not Prince Charming. So far we know two things about him. He tried to conquer the Greeks and he kicked his wife out because she didn't show up fast enough when he called. So we won't be surprised when he designs the absolute worst strategy for finding a new wife anybody ever thought of. In fact, he doesn't design it. He gets one of his assistants to suggest it to him. This is what the assistant suggests. Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. And let beauty treatments be given to them. And then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. Oh, isn't that romantic? Let's kidnap all the pretty girls throughout the kingdom, bring them here, make them slaves for a year until they're ready to please the king. And whoever pleases the king the most, she gets to be queen, sort of, except she's still really just a slave that the king will kick out as soon as he gets bored with her. In fact, I think sometimes it's hard for us to imagine just how awful and degrading this whole process of Xerxes finding a wife would have been. Fortunately, if you're having trouble just imagining how awful and degrading that was, we actually have video footage of that experience for Esther that we're going to show to you right now. This season on the Bachelor Royal Edition. I'm Xerxes, the king of Persia. One king search for love, but he has high standards. Look for someone who's pretty, beautiful, hot, gorgeous, attractive, gorgeous, did I say hot? Which beautiful girl will he choose? So I was picked because I look a certain way, which is fine. I'm perfectly fine with all of these beauty treatments. However, I hope they don't interfere with my daily regimen. I am not here to make friends. I am here for Xerxes. And I will throw anyone and everyone under the chariot if necessary. I could totally see myself being queen. My name's Tiara, so who better to wear one? I need my cuticles oiled three times a day, and I need my feet scrubbed with a Dead Sea loofah. Not a saltwater sponge, a Dead Sea loofah. I even have our children's names picked out. I'm just here to party! I have this small bunion growing on my foot. It's really small, but it's definitely there, and I just don't want this thing getting out of control. My parents died when I was really young, so my uncle raised me, and really, I'm doing this for my people, family, my family. Also, they can use anything with mango juice in it because I'm allergic. My face will swell up like a Persian pumpkin and things will just get ugly. I will do whatever it takes to be queen. Whatever it takes. I don't really know how they plan on improving perfect. A season full of intense drama. Belong to me. My parents said, Tiara, you have a sparkle. Do not let those girls take away your sparkle. She said, what? shocking betrayals Sorry. like you've never seen before. It's so rude to everyone else I and mean, it's just so ridiculous, you know. Oh, did someone put mango in my water? <laughs> so many special moments, but roses in time are running out. Ladies, you're all beautiful. 
some more than others. Esther, would you accept this rose? Yes. Ashley. V. Oh, snap. That's right. Would you accept this rose? I would love to. I just thought he would like my sparkle. Why didn't he like the sparkle? <laughs> a season of drama and heartbreak taken to a royal level. I just want a gorgeous woman that will come when she's called. And I think I deserve that. The Bachelor Royal Edition. Mondays after the Real Housewives of Jerusalem. All right, all right. So that's a good time, yeah. So Xerxes is no Prince Charming, and Esther wins the beauty pageant, but what she wins is no prize, and there is no happy ending. At around the same time Esther gets chosen, a guy named Haman gets chosen to be Xerxes' right-hand Man, Haman is pretty impressed with his new status, and he insists that all the other court officials bow to him whenever he travels through the city streets. There's one, though, who refuses to bow, a man named Mordecai. That would be Esther's uncle, because he's a Jew, and Jews bow only to God. And so Haman is so incensed by this insult, he decides to have Mordecai killed, and yet he can't because there was this one time when Mordecai saved the king's life, and so the king kind of likes Mordecai. And so Haman moves his status up from just crazy guy who wants revenge to comic book supervillain and says, if I can't just kill Mordecai, I'm going to kill all the Jews in all of the Persian Empire. He comes up with this plan. He pitches it to the king. He says, these people, they don't fit in. They don't act like everybody else. They don't follow your rules. I have an idea. I'll give you 10,000 talents if we just destroy them all. So they roll the dice, and they pick a date, and the king says, okay, and they're ready to kill, in just a few weeks' time, all the Jews in the Persian Empire. That's an evil evil world. Every time I read this story, it's not a sweet story. And I'm always so struck by what an evil world Esther lives in, where evil people are doing evil things and good seems like it's always on the brink of destruction. The other thing I notice when I read this story, you may have noticed it too if you did the reading or maybe somebody's pointed it out to you, is that God is never mentioned by name in the book of Esther. No one ever refers to God in the whole book. And I thought about that, and I just thought how, how appropriate that is as we consider this story. Because I think a lot of us sometimes feel like we live in a world where evil people rule the day and there is no God in our story. When you think about your interactions with your neighbors and with your friends, when you think about what's happening in our families, when you think about what, what might be happening at your workplace, I think some, some of you are probably here today because it feels like you live in a world that's evil and there is no God in your story and you just wonder if God would show up into your story. Or maybe you feel like there was a God in your story or God has done some things in your story, but in the place where you're facing evil right now, you just wonder if God is in that part of the story. And so Esther, in the midst of this evil world, when it seems like God is nowhere in the story, gets a message from Mordecai. 
Mordecai's heard the news. They've published the edict of what will be done. And he sends her this message. Through a servant, the text says, Mordecai also gave the servant a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And Mordecai told the servant to instruct her to go into the king's presence and beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Now I suppose that makes sense as a strategy, except we don't know what Esther knows. Listen to how she replies. She replies and says, All the king's officials and all the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death, unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spare their lives. But it's been 30 days since he has called me to him. She says, I can't just waltz in there and ask for a favor. Would you please spare my people that I've been hiding from you that I'm a part of? The last woman didn't come when she was called, and she's out on the street. If I come when I'm not called, I'll be dead. Don't you know how it works, Esther explains. He'll have to kill me just to demonstrate to all the women in Persia. Don't nag your husband. Don't show up unexpectedly, right? That's what he did to the last one. And I know Mordecai cares about her safety, but he also knows their situation, and so he speaks back to her a hard truth. He says this, chapter 3, Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Where is God in the story of Esther? Mordecai knew where God was in the story of Esther. Did you hear what he said? He says, if you do not act, relief and deliverance for the Jews, God's people, will come from some place. But what if you are standing in this place for such a time as this? You see, what Esther was doing, what so many of us do, is we focus when we're in a tough spot, we're in a place where the world seems evil and God seems absent from our story, we focus on the question, how did we get here? Maybe it was our mistakes or their mistakes. Maybe it was just the evil of the world. Maybe it was, I don't know what it was, but we ask ourselves, what brought me here? How did I get stuck in this spot? And Mordecai flips the script. He says, don't ask me what circumstances brought you here, but ask me this. Do you know what God could do from the circumstances in which you stand today? Esther says, I can't do it. You don't know my situation. I caught one break in my entire life. I'm an orphan. I was kidnapped. I was made a slave. I caught one break. The king liked me and he made me queen. And you want me to risk all that? And Mordecai says, I know. 
I know, Esther, I've been with you this whole time. I know you are in this because the world is evil. And I know you stand now face a greater evil than we've ever known. I know everything about how you got here. But what I'm asking you, Esther, is this. What can God do through where you now stand? I know we're in a mess. I know you won the worst beauty pageant the world ever held. But I'm asking you this, Esther. Could it be that you stand here because God is about to do something amazing? I warned you. Book of Esther is just a little bit like getting tackled at a touch football game. You're just reading along. Oh, what a sweet story. Girl gets kidnapped. Girl becomes a slave. Girl becomes the queen of Persia. And all of a sudden, Mordecai pops up and says, how do you not know that maybe from this situation in which you stand, God is going to rescue God's people? Now, I know some of you, you don't want to get tackled today, and so you're, you're protecting yourself already. This is what I'm doing right now. I'm saying, that was Esther, not me. You've got to look at where I am. You've got to look at my mistakes. You've got to look at how I got to this place. You've got to look at the evil that has been done to me and the evil that I have done that has left me where I am today. It, it, it may have been Esther's situation, but not my situation. Or maybe it's the opposite. You're very aware of God's grace in your life and how you've been rescued and redeemed and set free. And finally, you're for the first time in your life. I'm in a good place now. I caught one lucky break. I met Jesus and he changed my life. I, I, I can't risk that. I can't mess that up. You see, sometimes we are so focused on how we got where we are that we can't see what God could do from where we stand. I don't know if it's your job or your lack of a job, and you're so focused on how you lost that last job or how you got to this job. Maybe it's your marriage, which seems like it is dying fast, and you know every reason why they did it to your marriage, or even why you did it to your marriage. And you're so focused on how you got here, you can't see what God could do in that moment. Or maybe it's your messy divorce that is tearing your life apart and your kid's life apart and your family's life apart, and you know how you got here, but you can't see anything God could do from here. Or it's your friends, and maybe they don't even know you're here today, and if they knew you were here checking out Jesus, man, they'd laugh at you. But you just wonder if there's some purpose for your life, something God could do in your life, and you're just wanting to know. In whatever place you now stand today, I believe we need to have a Mordecai moment where somebody comes to us and says, how do you not know that this might not be the place you stand from which God is going to do something amazing? Do you even know what God could do through your life from where you now stand? That's what Mordecai asked Esther. You see, there was a ministry that Esther could do that no one else could do. I know how she got there. I know what her situation was. I know she lived her life at the whim of a despot. I know she stood in a terrible place through no fault of her own. I know the last queen got booted out for not showing up, and she could get killed if she shows up uninvited. But the question she needed to ask wasn't why me, but what about me? What could God do from this moment, from where I stand, that might change the world if I just believed there was something God wanted me to do? I think sometimes we, we fail to be clear enough on how much bravery is involved in boldly following the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. Because it takes bravery. It takes a person willing to believe that God could use them and willing to believe that God will use them and will be faithful to God's promises to them. 
Where is God in the story of Esther? I'll tell you where God is. God is about to work a miracle through the courage of one woman who happened to be standing in the right place. And if you've got the guts to do it today, I would love for you to consider a question. What could God do from where you stand? I'm not particularly interested in discovering what you could do. I mean, I'll just be perfectly frank. What you could do from where you stand is remarkably boring to me. I'm not interested in what you could accomplish or what you could pull off or what you could say or who you could... I'm not, I'm not that interested. But I'm curious to know. I'm remarkably curious to know what a world-creating, cosmos changing, nation building, people rescuing, life healing God could do from where you stand if only there stood in your shoes a willing follower of Christ who said I'll do whatever you ask me to do. Aren't you curious to know what might happen? Because there is a ministry that can be done from where you stand that no one else can do. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it. He writes to the Corinthian church. He says this. starts big picture. He says, If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. And all this is the work of God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against him, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Do you hear that? If you are today disconnected from God, cut off from the one who loves you, you need to know that Christ came, that you could be reconciled to God. And having been reconciled to God, you are now ministers of of reconciliation there's a job to be done here's the way Paul describes it he goes on to say we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though Christ were making his appeal through us I love that image I love that an ambassador that's somebody like if you're the ambassador to Spain or something you move to Spain and you live in Spain as a representative of the nation you came from right And Paul says, we are ambassadors, ambassadors of the kingdom of God, living in some other land as representatives of God. And the reason that's so important that you remember that is because you have access to places I don't. You have a ministry from where you stand that no one else can do. Now, for some of you, this is very technical. This is very, you actually work at places that other people can't get into. You know, you work, you work at APG or you work for the government or something. And you have special security clearances or whatever. Some of you work in offices that if I were to just drive my car to your parking lot and walk into your office and sit down, I'd be arrested on the way. And I don't even know what they would do to me next because they don't tell us, right? Okay? So some of you actually have access to places the rest of us physically can't go. And I'm just curious, who do you think God might want to use to share the reconciling love of God with those people? I know it isn't me because they'd shoot me if I tried. I couldn't even get in. So it must be you, right? Some of you have family members, brothers and sisters, moms and dads. Some of you have children. 
And don't you want your family to know how deeply loved they are? Don't you want your children to know how deeply loved they are? Here's the thing that might work. Maybe you could call me and some Tuesday evening I could come over and tell your children they're loved. No, that actually won't work, will it? They won't care if some strange man shows up. You see, there's a ministry to do from where you stand that no one else can do. Who do you think God has called to love your spouse? I know it's bad. I know, I, I know it's hard. I know you, you've been, you, some of you all have been talking about divorce lately. Some of you have already called a lawyer. I'm just asking, who do you think you've called, God has called to love your spouse? There's a ministry to do from where you stand that no one else can do. Your friends, your workplace, you are an ambassador of the reconciling love of God. And I think it's time for some of us to ask this simple question. What could a world-creating, miracle-working, sea-parting, nation-building, people-rescuing God do? If there were, standing in your shoes, a follower of Christ committed to doing the ministry of God in that place. Now, I know we're well defended. Some of you are saying, you don't understand, Ethan. It's not about me. The reason I can't do ministry from where I stand is that I'm just standing in the wrong place. If only I were standing in a different place, if only I had a different path in life, if, if I had different kids or a different spouse or a different family, if I'd gotten a different education, if I had your job, Ethan, then I could definitely do some ministry from where I stand. It's, it's just that over here I can't do... Have you ever seen little kids play soccer? I love watching little kids play soccer. At the beginning of the game, the coach tells them what their position is, right? Like, you're a defensive player, and I don't even know what the positions are in soccer. You're a wide receiver, or whatever they are, right? And um, he tells them what their positions are and tells them where they're supposed to stand on the field, right? But you know how it works, right? As soon as they kick the ball, right, what do the kids do? They only know one place where the action is. It's there where the ball is, and so they run. But they don't even know enough about physics to predict where the ball's going to be. They don't run to where it's going to be. They run to where it was, right? So you get this little ball going around the field while a bunch of kids chase it like an amoeba, right? Like you've seen this happen, right? And then there's that moment eventually, like usually it takes years, parents, you get how this happens, right? There's that moment eventually where one kid, after his coach has been saying it to him for years, finally hears him say, don't just chase the ball. Go stand in your position and they'll kick it to you. And this one kid, he goes and tries it. He goes and stands in his position where he's supposed to be. And all the other kids are laughing at him. Don't you see the balls over there, fool? And this other kid, he kind of gets confused. And he doesn't know what he's doing. But accidentally, he kicks it out of the pack and across the field. And that kid's standing there. And the ball's coming toward him. And the amoeba's over there on the side. He's like, I don't even know what to do. And he kind of freaks out. And he does this spastic thing with his foot. And he scores a goal. And all the parents on both sides cheer because it's the first goal they've had for two hours. It means they can call that tie over. And they can all go home and everybody's thrilled man man sometimes I feel like a little kid playing soccer oh God if I was over there there'd be ministry for me if I was just over there not where I am not where I stand today but if I was just over there maybe if I was on the mission field or if I wasn't retired God or if I had more education because I know there's not a ministry to do where I stand I just stand in the wrong place. It's not about you, God. It's not about me. I'm just, I'm just in the wrong place. This is why I'm so glad that again and again, Scripture tells us that the church needs every part of the body. Every part, every finger, every fingernail, that little weird thing on your foot. The church needs all of that. 
or we're not going to do this. This is why I'm glad Paul says to us that to everyone the Spirit has given gifts for the good of the whole church. Don't you wish Paul was a little more clear about who exactly got gifts? Oh, wait, no. He's perfectly clear. To everyone. I love Ephesians chapter 2. I wish I could read the whole chapter to you, but three verses are going to suffice. Listen to what it says. For it is by grace that you have been saved. Through faith, this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not by your works so that no one can boast. And then he says this, for you are God's master work, created to do great work, which God has already prepared for you to do. If you're, if you're far from God today, I want you to know God has some work prepared for you to do great work. And by grace, through faith, you can receive new life and do it. And if you've already done that, I want you to know God has work prepared for you to do. You are God's master work. And God has great work, which he has already prepared for you to do. And aren't you just a little bit curious to know what it is? Doesn't just some part of you wonder, great work prepared for me, if only I knew what it was. Doesn't something in you just want to know what could a world-creating, miracle-working, sea-parting, nation-building God do if in your shoes there stood a disciple of Christ who said, I'll do whatever I must, I'll do whatever you ask. Aren't you just curious to know what God can do from where you stand? I'm so desperate to find out. I'll get back to the story of Esther in just a minute. I'll tell you a story about my friend Lisa. My friend Lisa, uh, she had a hard life, made a lot of terrible choices, and was uh, rescued by the love of Christ and brought back and was uh, really on a good path as a part of this church. And 2013 was going to be a great year for her. She had a job that she loved. She was a marine biologist down in the city, just loved this job. And she was planning to go on a mission trip to Kenya. After all God had done for her, she was going to go to the Turkana people and give back to God. It was going to be great. And then at the beginning of the year, two things happened. First of all, her boss told her that they were eliminating her position, and very soon she would lose her job. And secondly, she was diagnosed with a rare skin disease that meant she couldn't spend very long in the sun. And Turkana is a hot, sunny place, and so Turkana was out. So she was in a place where the world looked evil, and you've got to wonder if God is in that story. But Lisa knew that there's a ministry that can be done from where you stand that no one else can do. And so she began to wonder what that was. And she changed to a different team. She would still go to Kenya, but now she'd be working in Nairobi with some of the girls in the slums there. And she would tell them her story of redemption, and God used that story in a great way. But then this one other thing happened. I just, I don't know what to do with this, right? So she's over there in Kenya, and they're having a meeting, and people are blah, 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 and like they always do, you know, and one person there from the Kenya team was talking about stuff and said, yeah, we had this really great idea. We were going to start a fish farm to sell fish to support one of our schools, uh, but it didn't work. All the fish are dying. If only we had access to what do you call those people who know everything about fish? Oh, yeah, if only we had a marine biologist who had some time to kill and could help us out. How do you not know? that you were not in this place for such a time as this. You see, there are no sidelines. There is a ministry to do from where you stand that God wants to do through you, and only you can do it.
Mordecai's right. God, God will find a way. But what if God did it through you? Wouldn't that be awesome? I've got another friend. I wish I could tell you her whole story, but I just want to tell you one piece. She discovered one of the important places that she stood was as a child of a terrible and messy divorce. And she was broken in all kinds of ways she hadn't even dealt with from that. And what ministry could you do from that place, you know? Wouldn't it be better if you pretended you stood some other place where you were all put together? She could pretend she stood other place and hopefully God could use her there. But she knew there was a ministry to do from where she stood. And so she's working with our Divorce Care for Kids program. She's just loving on those kids, giving them love she didn't have at that moment in her life. And God is blessing her and redeeming her and working through her. And I'm just starting to wonder, aren't you just starting to wish you knew the answer? I want you to think about all the places you stand, all the relationships you have, all the people you know, all the places you go, your friends at work, your neighbors across the street that don't even know God loves them or that you care to know their name. I want you to think about all the places you stand and I just want you to imagine with me for a second in every relationship you have, in every context you've been given, with every gift that God has blessed you with, aren't you curious to find out the answer about what a world-creating, miracle-working, sea-parting, nation-building, people-rescuing, time-stopping, dead-rising, lame-walking, blind-seeing, slave-freeing, debt-paying, sin-forgiving, cosmos-healing, sun-dying, and sun-rising God could do from where you stand if only God could find, standing in that place, a willing disciple who was ready to say I'll do whatever must be done because I'm curious to know I'm really fascinated to find out what would happen in your marriage which is heading south south fast if you decided from where we stand today God knows how we got here but from where we stand today I want to know what God could do if I loved like a disciple of Christ loves. I'm very curious to know what would happen in your workplace and with your friends if you decided from where we stand today, I want to see what God could do if I gave this arena of my life all the way over to him. In your schools, in your homes, in your neighborhoods, aren't you curious to know? So Esther wrote back to her uncle. This must have been a hard message to send. Here's what she said. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. And so she does. She goes to the king. And God gives her favor, and he extends the scepter to her, and her life is spared. And the king says to her in a grand gesture that he doesn't really mean, he says, tell me what you want, up to half my kingdom and is yours. And she takes a deep breath and says, this is it, do or die time. I want you to come to dinner with me and bring Haman. And so he does. And they come to dinner and they eat a good meal, and at the end of the meal he asks, tell me what you want, up to half my kingdom. And she says... I want you to come to dinner again. And he does. The second meal, the third time, he asks the question, what do you want up to half my kingdom? And she tells him what he wants. And Xerxes is persuaded, and Haman is executed, and the people Haman had gathered to kill all the Jews in the cities throughout Persia are themselves destroyed. 
You see, there's a ministry to be done from where you stand that no one else could do. And I want to know, in my life, I so desperately want to know what God could do if a totally committed disciple of Jesus Christ stood in my shoes. I'm curious, from where you stand, who could you love that no one else could love? From where you stand, who could you pray for that no one else could really pray for like you could? Who could you invite? Who could you help? Who could you forgive? Who could you tell about the reconciling love of God from where you stand? I'm just curious, do you know yet what the ministry is that you could do from where you stand that no one else can do? I hope you ask a friend. Some of us are going to need a Mordecai or a few Mordecais in our lives to help us figure out, okay, from where I stand, what could God do through me? Ask some friends who love you and love God. And then be ready, because you'll need to be brave. You might need to say, like Esther did, if I perish, I perish. It may just be that to do the work of God, from where you stand, you'll have to risk everything that you love. That's what Esther had to do. In just a minute, we're going to sing a song. The band is going to come out. You'll recognize the song, some of you. Some of you have never heard it before. It doesn't really matter. They'll play a few chords, and then they'll start singing. But I I want us to pause just a minute before we sing, because I want to warn you a little bit. Here's what the chorus of this song says. Listen to these words. Where you go, I'll go. And we're talking to God in this song. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. I will follow. Who you love, I'll love. And let's be clear, God loves your ex-best friend. God loves your ex-husband. God loves your ex-wife. God loves your parents who you cannot forgive because of the great evil they did. And God loves your children who feel, you feel like are abandoning you despite all you did. God loves that person in the cubicle down the hall who refuses to wear headphones and instead blasts their music all day long. And God loves that person who just cuts you off on 95. Who you love, I'll love, it says. How you serve, I'll serve. And let's remember, God served us by dying on a cross. And the chorus ends like this. If this life I lose, I will follow. That sounds almost like Esther said it. If I perish, I perish. In this song, we are making a bold and public declaration. By singing these words, we are saying together, I believe that there is work to be done from where I stand that God has prepared for me to do. I believe that I have yet to see what God could do through my life from where I stand if only I gave my life fully over to Him. I believe that the story of Esther is not the exception, but it is the example of how God is calling every one of us in the places where we stand to turn our lives over to the work of God in this moment. And I believe that when my story seems evil and it seems like there's no God in it, that is the moment in which God is ready to act through me as I am a willing ambassador of the reconciling love of God in a minute the band's going to sing this song I dare you to sing it with them let's pray God give us the faith increase our courage 
Increase our knowledge of you that we might truly believe that there is work to be done from where we stand that you have prepared for us to do and that we might trust you enough to let you do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.